Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Security Management Highlights. Oftentimes, if you ask just this generic question, well, have you ever been sexually harassed at work? A quarter of the uh, people will raise their hands. But then when you ask the question of, well, how many of you have experienced uh, some type of uh, sexual put down at work? Then you get 75% of the people, if not more, particularly the women, right, raising their hands. EEOC Commissioner Victoria Lipnick stops by to speak with me about sexual harassment and how we can create a culture of prevention in the workplace. So your first impression based on your body language, the way you walk, your gait, your speed, etc. All of those little things are actually making an impression in that other person's mind and making them say, ah, too confident, they might resist. Burke Brownfield is the Director of Security and Global Safety for Visa Inc. He's also an author, speaker, and documentary film producer focusing on topics related to corporate security and criminal justice. All that and more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Commissioner Lipnick, welcome okay. to Security Management Highlights. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much, Chuck. Glad to be with you. Now, we're going to speak about creating a culture that prevents sexual harassment in the workplace. Tell us why corporate culture matters in these cases. Sure. Uh, well, that's a pretty big question to start off with, but probably one of the most significant factors uh, that will impact how uh, people are are uh, treated in their workplace, whatever their workplace is, whatever work situation uh, is what the culture is. And, and there are a lot of things that, you know, the leadership of organizations and certainly individual employees can do to uh, impact that culture. But uh, certainly being aware that of the potential for a workplace situation to have some harassing behavior uh, is something that leadership and organizations have to be aware of, but it all starts with uh, really what's the culture there. Sexual harassment is really a personal safety issue, isn't it? It is a safety issue. It is very much a safety issue. Legally, people sort of think, okay, well, there are these two types of harassment, the quid pro quo, and then a hostile environment, hostile work environment. Well, hostile work environment can, you know, there's legal sta- there's a legal standard that applies to that if someone wants to actually uh, bring a case. But as we pointed out in our report, you have to think of harassment, it's really sort of on a continuum everything from the sexual put down all the way to the sexual assault. That's a pretty big range. Uh, There's a lot of things that can happen there in between. And certainly on the far range, uh, as you point out, particularly if you're getting into issues related to assault or actual assaults, it's very much a safety issue. So since security professionals are trained to identify risk, you know, how can how can security professionals take it an active role in this? In reporting preventing sex harassment in the workplace. We, we're kind of in a unique position as security professionals to help change this culture, aren't we? Yes, very much so. And uh, which is one of the reasons I appreciate your organization doing this, putting some attention on it. The I think one of the most important things for security professionals is to recognize, right, the awareness that the security professionals have of the work environment. What you all know better than anyone is where it is people go to do their work. An organization, right, a big organization, can have multiple uh, different types of workplaces. And depending upon where people are working, that can influence the risk. Uh, So, uh, you know, do you have women who are isolated? The security professionals know the work environment and can certainly play a big role in making sure that the management of the organization and the leadership 
really knowing where people are working makes a big difference and what are the circumstances uh, they find themselves in at every point of the day or night when they are doing their job. I found this part of your task force finding very interesting. Anywhere from 25 to 85% of the women report having experienced sexual harassment in the workplace, but the percentages varied due to how the questions about harassment at work are worded. That's really interesting. So if I have a sexual harassment policy and I define sexual harassment equals ABC, I'm going to have a different outcome if I just make it a generic policy about harassment. Explain that for us. Oftentimes, if, if you ask just this generic question, uh, well, have you ever been sexually harassed at work? You know, you might get 25% of people who say yes, quarter of the uh, people will raise their hands. Uh, but then when you ask the question of, well, how many of you have experienced uh, some type of uh, sexual put down at work? Then you get 75% of the people, if not more, particularly the women, right, raising their hands. But but that sort of, that explains the difference. So, you know, just a flat out general question about sexual harassment. Now, you know, the, when we published uh, our task force report in 2016, we were using every study and every piece of data that we could find at that time. I haven't seen anything recently, but it would be curious, right, if you ask that question now, right, how many people think they've been sexually harassed at work. You'd probably still find that range, I think. But, you know, I wonder if more people would uh, certainly ha not just have the awareness about harassment, but might be thinking to themselves, yes, and as a matter of fact, I feel like I have been. Where that, Whereas, you know, even three, four years ago, they might not have. Let's say we have a valued employee in an organization that makes a company millions and millions of dollars every day. Uh, a lot of times in my experience, uh, you know, Management kind of looks the other way. So when you have your corporate culture leaders engaged in this activity, how the heck are you going to change that culture? I mean, that, that's, that's the big challenge. Right. Well, that's a huge challenge in, in many places. And um, so that was something uh, that we, uh, in our uh, study and report, called out. And we called it out as what we called the superstar harasser. And uh, so, and what me, what we mean by the superstar harasser is exactly what you said, someone who's the highly valued employee. Now that doesn't necessarily always translate to someone who is a senior executive. And so let's be, you know, clear about that. So in terms of like the superstar harasser, I mean, it could be, that's somebody who, and um, look, the Harvey Weinstein case was an example of this, right? Who brings in all the money and uh, gets all the accounts. It's the professor who gets all the grant money. Uh, it's the, uh, you know, in medical settings, right? Uh, we had lots of, we had some testimony in front of our task force about, you know, it's the surgeon who's considered, right, the real sort of uh, in the hierarchy, top of the heap. But the highly valued employees can also be, uh, you know, someone who is a manager who is very good. Most workplaces, right? So someone who's very good at his or her job, uh, you know, most often in certainly in sexual harassment cases, uh, it will be he, but not always, like I said, but someone who's good at, let's say someone who's really good at his job, and maybe there's some undercurrent of, or some people are aware of some, you know, things going on with that person. They don't get reported, but the management has reason to know about it. And they're not taking any action because even that employee is highly valued, right? 
he really gets the job done. And so removing someone or taking some uh, disciplinary action or uh, becomes uh, something that people avoid for a long time. You know, with the rise of the Me Too movement, I think the single biggest change uh, in terms of companies and cultures and owning their cultures has been a recognition of, oh, wait a minute, uh, these are situations that we cannot and should not tolerate. And if they have some undercurrent of uh, knowing what's going on or some rumblings about it, uh, I do think uh, there's been a sea change in companies and employers being much more willing to look into it and to uh, take some action. Let's talk about some risk factors involved in the, in the various company cultures. Every company does have its own culture, and that can really affect the way people perceive what harassment is and perceive whether they should do something about it. We published a whole list of risk factors as part of our task force report. And by the way, I should mention that our task force report is available on the EEOC's website. You know, hope people will take a look at it and uh, and therefore uh, uh, easy uh, access. Any one risk factor. So, for example, uh, you know, one thing that we talked about, for, just to use as an example, is uh, workplaces that have a lot of young workers. You know, we see lots of cases within the EEOC in the restaurant industry, for example, uh, because they tend to have a lot of work, young workers. Uh, there tends to be a lot of turnover. Uh, you may not have people who are particularly senior uh, in terms of management. These may be, you know, first jobs for many people. And so, you know, they don't know sort of what the norms are or what the behaviors are uh, supposed to be. Uh, if you have workplaces that have a lot of repetition in terms of the work, boredom, uh, <laughs> or, you know, a lot of repetition in terms of what people do in their work can lead to horseplay or a prank. You're already then on a slippery slope of what's uh, potentially becoming harassing for someone else in the workplace. We talked about, you know, the high value employees and that, but that also uh, talks about or implicates where there are individuals in the workplace who, where there are real significant power disparities. And so someone who, you know, is absolutely the um, head of the uh, organization and who, if, if people are afraid to challenge that person. And again, that also goes to, uh, you know, someone who manages people uh, and who, uh, you know, is absolutely in control of and has the real power in a workplace. And, you know, that there is anywhere there is power, there is a potential for people, others to be vulnerable. But all of these things, all of the kinds of risk factors are things that uh, certainly that um, safety professionals should be aware of, can be aware of in ways that really benefit the leadership in organizations who are want to make sure that their employees are able to do their jobs and not have to work in any kind of uh, hostile environment. There is no safety in not having reports of harassment. So let's say you've gone for the last year and you think, you know, hey, we haven't had any harassment reports or, well, that doesn't really, what does that tell you? That tells you only that you haven't had to do any internal investigations. Uh, it doesn't really tell you much of an assessment of your culture. It's certainly, you know, something to look at, but, you know, again, you have, you know, be mindful of the fact that so few people are willing to report it. Right. So our uh, report 
talked about how 75% of the people who experience harassment do not report it. And they do not report it because they're afraid to. Uh, they're afraid of retaliation. They're afraid of you know what might happen to the job that they're doing. That's something to uh, pay attention to. Training, of course, is always something uh, that's uh, important. One of the things that we were very critical of in our uh, report, and this was a highly unusual thing, but we were pretty critical of a lot of harassment, anti-harassment training that had been taking place over the last uh, 30 years, again, sort of uh, when the kind of cottage industry of workplace training really developed because of the Supreme Court uh, cases, because it was all very, and it has been all very focused on legal compliance, not as much about, um, well, how do you prevent this stuff in the first place? And how do you know how do you create a culture where uh, it's not going to happen? Among the things that we suggested in terms of training, and you know, we really sort of called for a rebooting of a lot of uh, workplace training. Uh, we suggested that there ought to be some uh, sense of general civility in workplaces, and uh, what does that mean? And then uh, also bystander intervention, which was something that uh, we suggested. One thing I want to say about training in particular, and uh, especially for those who you know have influence over the safety of people at work, if you train no one else in your workplace, train the first line supervisors. That was something that we really called attention to because they are the ones, right, who if there is something wrong or uh, potentially going wrong, they're the ones who are going to see it. They're the ones who, or they certainly should be aware of it. Um, they're the ones who who someone is going to come to about it or make a comment about, and they need to know what to do when someone complains to them. Or if someone just makes, you know, some offhand remark, look, I'm sick and tired of the way, you know, Chuck keeps, you know, saying this stuff to me. Well, if a, a first line supervisor has heard that, that's not something that he or she should just brush off. They need to know how to respond to that. And so uh, really, uh, you know, training the first line supervisors, I think, is pretty critical. I think the opportunity for uh, safety professionals who really know their workplaces to be involved in those discussions within the management of an organization uh, is really critical and can make a big difference. Well, I agree. Oftentimes, the security officer, security professional is the first contact the public has with a company or, or culture, and they set the tone right there. The topic itself is something I've been concerned about for years, and we've put a lot of attention on it at the EOC over the past number of years. Even before, uh, you know, the Me Too movement arose, I mean, we had put our, uh, done our work and had our task force report out there in 2016. And, you know, when uh, in October of 2017, which is really sort of the real rise of the Me Too movement with uh, the reporting by the New York Times and the New Yorker. And you know, it's interesting now, here we are in uh, 2020, and just in the last month, right, we've seen a lot of the fallout, even more so, right, of uh, many of the kind of high profile uh, Me Too cases. And what I really hope is that uh, people don't think that this is sort of a one and done kind of thing, uh, that, oh, well, okay, that harassment thing we were talking about over the last couple of years, we're you know, we've, we're, we all, we're kind of concluded on that. And that's where both, you know, certainly the work of the EOC, but the people who are on the front lines, which are all of the people who 
are your professionals in organizations. Uh, again, I can't underscore how much of a difference uh, you guys can make on this issue. EEOC Commissioner Victoria Lipnick, fascinating conversation. We could speak for hours on this topic. I am so pleased that you came on the show and I'm so happy that you can really tie this together for the security industry because we can play such an important role in this and really help help improve the workplaces uh, in this situation. I'm very honored to speak with you and uh, thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights. Thank you very much, Chuck. Thanks very much for having me. Burke, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you so much. You know, I'm excited to speak about our topic today, the science of first impressions. It's really, at our in the guard business, this is really one of the most important things because the security officer is almost the first thing you see walking into any business. And if the business gets that wrong, that could damage your entire public image for your company. Tell us about uh, about this topic in your research. Sure, and I, I completely agree with, uh, with with the way you um, frame that. And I think what what we often forget is that the security officers that we place, for example, you know, at a front gate or at a front lobby, are having sometimes hundreds, if not thousands of what I would call micro interactions with people every single day. And based on what we know about the way first impressions work, sometimes those micro interactions are the only opportunities that those officers have to make any kind of impression. So suddenly the value of that impression goes way up, right? So, you know, take for example, if you were an architect and you uh, walked past someone in a hallway and, and you forgot to nod or smile or something, that might not make the best first impression, but maybe two hours later, you had the chance to give them a presentation about a new building that you're designing. And and maybe you're able to show, oh, actually, he's an okay guy. And no, oh, he's nice. And always oh, very intelligent, etc. Well, the security officer doesn't have that luxury, right? Sometimes the interaction is literally a one to two second interaction. And that's pretty typical for them maybe all day long. So that first impression sometimes is the only opportunity. And so I decided to really start to deconstruct that and say, okay, well, how, what can we do within the security business to understand the first impression better, understand the ingredients of the first impression? And what I like to say, you know, like you can kind of win or lose every first impression. And what can we do to be more on the winning end than the losing end? What's interesting is we've heard this phrase forever that it, you know, it takes about seven seconds to make a first impression. Turns out that's not going completely true. It takes about one-tenth of a second to make a first impression. I found that very yeah. interesting. Yes. Yeah, so, um, and I was surprised by that too. And I, I started to really dig deep. I bought a book, quite a bit of scientific research focused literally on first impressions. And they, there's this really kind of fun experiment they did where they showed uh, participants, subjects of the study, these photos of real political candidates from a real election. Now, these, these participants didn't know who these political candidates were. They'd never seen them before. Let's say they might have been like, you know, state senators from Iowa or something, and you were showing people in London these photos, right? Someone that you could never conceivably have known about. And effectively, these participants were asked between the two real political candidates in a real election to say effectively who they would vote for or who they found to be more competent, you know, A or B. And what was really interesting is that the results of that aligned very well with the real election results. So, and they were shown these photos for literally about one-tenth of a second. So just, and, and we imagine one-tenth of a second. I mean, imagine how short, like, snapping your fingers is, right? I mean, you're literally talking like a glance at something for very, very quickly and then looking away. That's how much time these people were given to look at these photos. And yet, very reliably, 
these studies resulted in predicting the outcome of real elections. So not, you know, that first impression with one tenth of a second was pretty indicative of who the real winner was in a real election. So science there tells us we have way less time than we thought um, when we're trying to make that first impression. So I get this. I get this science. It's very, very fascinating. Now, I've, I've always told my guards this since way back in the day. Show up, look good, and you're 51% successful. Well, the science says actually you're 57% successful. Tell us about that. Yeah, so effectively, there's a, a, a cool study um, from UCLA that basically tells us over ha- – if you talk about, let's say, I like to call it like the nutritional facts, right? You pick up a, a, a food item at the grocery store and you're looking for the nutritional facts. If you look at the first impression – and you look at the nutritional facts of what's in there, right? What are, what's the ingredients behind the first impression? Over half of a first impression is just based on body language, and that's it. So body language, if you get the body language right, um, you're, you're doing really well. Body language uh, slash appearance, because there's a lot that kind of gets baked into body language. Body language and appearance. Then about 38% comes from your actual voice, and then about 7% comes from the words that you're using, the actual language that you're using. So what what's really neat about that is you can easily translate that into a, kind of an operational um, scenario with an officer. And I used to do it when I used to work at the uh, DC Metro system, I, w- I would talk about this in training because you can fail. There, there's plenty of stopping points in the first impression where you can drop the ball and fail, right? So if you imagine a scenario, let's say you're at a front gate, right? You're the you're the security officer at the front gate of a, of a campus and a car pulls up. Now, let's say that um, the words that come out of your mouth are good evening, ma'am, you know, to the, to the driver, right? So you get the words correct, right? And the way you say it might be correct, like good evening, ma'am, like very polite and upbeat. But what if, as you said that you were staring down at your cell phone or you were looking at your computer or you weren't making eye contact or you were, um, slouched down in your chair as the car pulled up as you're saying, good evening, ma'am. Well, the problem is if you get <laughs> the, the part that's worth over 50% is all that body language and the way you're, the way you physically appear. If you've lost that, you've probably lost the first impression, right? So you kind of need to get it all right in order to really quote unquote win the first impression. And again, we've got to remember now, granted, the first impression might only take one tenth of a second, but we might only have like two total seconds available, right? It might be as simple as literally saying those words, good evening, ma'am. And they that, say that person shows the, the ID like to get into the campus. And then you might say, have a great day. And then the person drives on. That's the extent of your opportunity right there. So if you can't get it right. And so if you're talking about operations, like, you know, that your uniform is clean and well, you know, uh, tucked in and there's no stains on your uniform, uh, all those things, you're making eye contact. Um, those all become really important. And I think with that being said, and and maybe you're going to get this to this, Chuck, but I think it leads into this question about even the uniforms that you choose, right? That, that becomes an issue. You're absolutely right about this. Now I'm going to, I'm going to go back to my police academy and I just had an epiphany. I never understood why they made us march for hours and hours and hours and chant things when we marched and say, sir, yes, sir. No, sir. First word out of your mouth was sir. Last word was sir. right? Right. I get it. I get it because it built what we called command presence. Right. And I still to this day walk a certain way at a certain pace that makes me look like I'm plowing through the line at Walmart. 
right? It's just right. It's, it's built into me, and people move aside because I I look like I'm on a mission doing something right. going somewhere. Right, right. No, well, Chuck, to, I, to that, that to your point there, though. So what's really interesting about this is we can. The 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 funny thing about this is this kind of science works on both sides. So separately. A really cool study that happened back in the 80s, and I'd love I, I'd love to hear if someone has redone this study. But basically, these um, psychologists went into prison and interviewed convicted armed robbers, and they showed them videos of people walking down the street. And the main question was, who would you rob? Who would you not rob? And then why? What about the person that you would rob is making you want to rob them? And what about the person that you wouldn't rob is saying, you're saying, yeah, no, not worth my time, right? And exactly what you just said about the way you still walk down the street was one of those major indicators, right? Like, for example, projected confidence. We're still talking again about a first impression, right? So it goes both ways. So here you have someone who is a predatory criminal who's interested in doing harm to someone, and they are actually persuaded or dissuaded from committing that act based on the first impression, right? So your first impression based on your body language, the way you walk, your gait, your speed, et cetera, all of those little things are actually making an impression in that other person's mind and making them say, ah, too confident, they might resist, right? I'm not going to rob them. Or that person doesn't look very confident, bad first impression, and that may ultimately lead to them making the decision, I think I can get away with this, right? So it has it's a very powerful thing. If you have this awareness of the impression that you're making on people, it really holds a lot of power. It is super powerful, and I think this is super cool. Now, here's my question to you. Why can't we emphasize this more on the security side? One answer is we don't have security officer academies, right? Because, you know, this is muscle right. memory. We marched for hours and hours for months and months, and that just becomes automatic. How do we get this message to a guard to make them feel pride and ownership, command presence, all these things? Because really, their jobs would be so much easier and more effective if they understood this part of it. I think it's so important. Right. Absolutely. I agree 100%. I think the the way that I have found the most success in this, where I've, I've had guard force management roles, um, has been to educate the officers as much as educating the leaders about this, right? You don't know what you don't know. And so some of that uh, um, involves coming at it from left field, I would say, also, because you, you mentioned, I think, the word pride in there. One of the... You, you can't have the sense of confidence in that sort of aura about you if you're still searching for a reason to be proud of what you're doing, right? So the leader's job ultimately is to get in front of their teams and their officers and remind them of why their role is so critically important to the business, first of all, right? Because you mentioned in the very beginning, Chuck, that security officer, whether people like it or not, and whether they know it or not, may make or break the impression not only of the security officer or the security team, but maybe the company itself, right? Much like a recruiter for human resources may make or break the whole entire impression of the company with a candidate based on missing an email, not returning a call, et cetera. You might write off the entire company because of one bad interaction with a recruiter. Um, so security officers function very similarly. So number one, I think, is reminding the officer why they should be proud and why they're important. So you give them the underlying feelings that they can grab onto and then educating them about this science, right? If you, a lot of people just don't know that the science is out there. Um, and if you have start to understand better of like, oh, wow, if I'm slouching or looking disinterested, I'm actually, that's a loss. Like I've just lost that person. And then I try to almost make it, you know, 
a game in a way of like, okay, I know that I'm going to see 500 people today. Well, out of 500, how many of those can be, I can, how many can I win versus lose? Right. And then you start to think in your mind, like, okay, I just won that one. I've got to stay on top of my game. And then the, the final piece of this, Chuck, I think is we sometimes set up our people for failure. And what I mean by that is, and you see it all the time. I've, I've, I can't tell you the number of police departments, for example, that keep doing this. The science tells us color matters in uniforms and colors of cars, et cetera. We'll put officers in a black-on-black uniform. The problem is the science tells us that black uniform, all black uniforms are seen as negative on almost every scale. If you ask, if you do a surveys of people, which have been done, they're seen as negative. They're seen as aggressive, uh, dominant. They bring out feelings of anger. Yet, oftentimes, we'll say, oh, we're going to change our uniforms to black on black. Well, wait a second. <laughs> That that defies science, right? So on the one hand, you might have a police chief who's saying, we're going to engage with the community more. We're going to build community relationships, build community trust, et cetera. And then next month to say, oh, we've decided to change it to, uh, from white shirts to black shirts. Well, the problem is that doesn't jive with science. The science would tell us that it's actually going to hurt your effort of building trust because the moment that person gets out of the car, you have subtly and subliminally sent a message to the person they're about to interact with, right? Ooh, maybe I should be afraid of this person. Maybe I should feel intimidated, et cetera. And the same is true for security officers, right? Frontline security officers are in a uniform. It's our role as leaders to make sure we set them up for success by putting them in that right uniform to set the right tone that we want. Brownfield, you've made a very good first impression, my friend. <laughs> I must say. Well, thank you. Thank you. And you couldn't even see me. You couldn't even see me. So, I mean, wow, I really defied the odds. Yeah, exactly. You, <laughs> the formula works. Thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend, and I uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much.